Wait a minute. I'm getting a little lispy oh, over here. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And do you think we've got a show for you this week? Well, hell yes we do. We've got a heady answering machine question, an interview with Kim Kimchi Giannoni, Dean Reviews, and a feature on Montana photographer and patron saint of All Through a Lens, Evelyn Cameron. Is that not enough? Fine. Let's ask Vanya how the hell she's been. Vanya, these good people want to know just how the hell you've been. <laughs> I wish I had more to say. I've just been getting back into the swing of things with the podcast and life in general, making lists, developing and scanning and daydreaming about more road trips. Yeah, that kind of sounds like you. How's the surfing been? Not well. It's been terrible, but you know, it's summer, so it is what it is. (laughs) So Eric, how have you been? Tell us, tell us all. Well, I've been scanning and developing basically everything. I had a bunch of roles that I've been doing. I've been trying some, well, not new developers, but, you know, I've been just kind of settling into the developing thing. But I've also been working on two new issues of Conspiracy of Cartographer Zine, and I think I'm going to release them both at the same time. I'm basically Guns N' Roses now. Stop. No. I'm sure I'll talk about these a little bit later uh, when they come out but one issue is all shots taken with the 1914 brownie box camera and the other issue is a bunch of shots with the imperial satellite on some old sears branded 127 film from about the 60s somewhere in there both are like super different as far as layout goes and they're also different from the six by seven zine that we have just recently put out and if you haven't gotten your copy yet you should because we're running out and also six by seven zine is available in a digital version, and it's only $8. Yeah, um, the, the shipping across the sea was, was quite a lot. <laughs> so if you are in Europe or Australia or wherever you are, feel free to pick it up for $8. If you're in the States, I mean, we can't stop you from buying it. <laughs> and, and if the prohibitive cost of, of $15 in shipping was too much for you, pick up the digital version. It's, it's completely okay to do that. Well, also, just to make a note of this, Something to think about when you are making a zine as far as size and weight goes. It's kind of hard to guess, but if you're doing a heavy zine of 60 pages and it's really big, it's going to (laughs) cost to ship it. Anything over eight ounces is going to cost a lot to ship overseas. Keep that in mind. So, yes, I'm so excited to listen to the answering machine. So can I push the button? Please, for God's sakes, shut up and push the button. Oh, actually, we probably should mention what the question was. (laughs) I should shut up and and just tell you what the question was. Um, Yeah, the question was, do you have a camera that you don't shoot with anymore, but you just can't part with for whatever reason? Now, do you want to push the button? Yes, can I please? Please. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, this is Jesse at JRenew on Instagram. Uh, The camera that I can't seem to get rid of, even though I don't use it, is the Minolta SRT 101. I love the lenses that camera comes with, but because I'm like way old now, I have shitty eyesight, so I can't focus it with this standard SLR focusing. Uh, I think it might be time for something autofocus or just stick with my rangefinders and my Mimiya C3. Anyway, love you guys. Thanks. So interesting thing. I am right-handed, but I shoot with my left eye because my right eye, it's just a little fuzzy. So, okay. <laughs> the The weird thing is I didn't really even notice that I did that. I just chose that eye. I've always shot with that with my left eye. So I don't know. It's so weird. But shooting cameras with glasses can kind of be a pain in the ass. It, it is. Yeah. I would say, I mean, he mentioned the Mamiya C3, which is a great camera that I used to own. I would say stick with that. Maybe, maybe explore some other medium format options because 35 mm-hmm. is really tiny. Well, in all fairness, I think the only answer to that is, uh, Yes, probably dozens. Why do I keep them? Well, 
Some of them are pretty. Some of them are very hard to come by, even though they don't cost a lot. I figure someday I will look at one of those things sitting on the shelf and go, you know what? You, you, my friend, are going to be the creator of my next project. I kind of have that problem. Do too. you have like a pretty <laughs> camera problem? Yes, I do. do. Okay. What are your pretty cameras? Oh my goodness. Where do I start? Well, I actually have one of those satellites <laughs> oh, you do. Uh, yeah. up there right now. Oh, it is a very pretty camera. Well, okay. What's on my shelf right now? I have the Mako Shark, yes. which is like a 1950s uh, 620 water underwater camera, Nikonos 2, uh-huh. satellite, and your Exacta. My Exacta. That is a very pretty camera. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, Morgan Mesner here at Peggy Hills Camera on Instagram. The one camera I cannot seem to let go of is my unreliable Yashica Mat 124, just 124, not the G version. Um, it has spacing issues, nothing ever seems to be in focus, and sometimes the film crank just won't crank. But the previous owner reskinned it in a green and orange color scheme, and those are the colors of my alma mater, which I love dearly. And for that reason alone, I'll never let go of the camera. So when, when <laughs> I, I, I listened to these before, and I was trying to figure out, okay, orange and green, I can't imagine those two colors together, honestly. And I can't imagine like what alma mater that would be. So Morgan, that's a really intense, that's a choice. Yeah, it's so funny. She knew exactly what everybody was thinking when she said Yashika Mat 124. Because mm-hmm. I like perked up like, oh my god, I love that camera. And then she's like, not the G version. Well, what's like, the difference? Right, I, don't, okay. I know nothing about Yashika Mats. I've never shot by that. Oh my god, I love my Yashika Mat. Is the Yashika Mat a TLR? Yep. What's the G then? Uh, For great, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey guys, I'm here um, at Panku Film on Instagram. A camera that I never use but can't bring myself to get rid of is a Olympus OM-10, which was given to me by the caretaker at my old university halls of residence um, when he saw me taking photos using my, my OM-1. I kind of feel like getting rid of it would be somehow kind of rude since it was gifted to me by him, but at the same time, I don't use it because I can just use my OM-1 with all the same lenses and not having to worry about a manual adapter to attach to it. And I kind of guess maybe just keeping it but not using it is also not really in the spirit of why he gave it to me. Yes, you're correct. (laughs) That is absolutely in the spirit. So now it is your turn. You are now the guy with the camera who needs to find somebody shooting maybe a lesser camera or a less interesting camera and gift it to them. You're not using it anymore. So I think it's time to the uh, the, the student becomes the master at this point, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Passing it along, yes, honestly, along. is probably the best because it's not like you're profiting from it. You're, you know, if someone's intrigued by this camera or wants to, you know, I, I come across this a lot with people. They'll say like, oh, my gosh, I, I'm really like interested in film and I'm always excited to be helpful. I'm all about giving a camera and most of the cameras I get, you know, people give to me because they're like, oh, you shoot film, here's a camera. So a lot of those I need to do something with because I can't shoot with all of them. So I end up like just passing them along. Hi, Vanya and Eric. Uh, My name is Dean, and I'm Nagel Gazer on Instagram. When I was a kid, there was a place called BC Collateral. And uh, and if you look up some Herzog photos, you'll find it. It's on the unit block of Hastings Street. Not a great place back then, but still not bad. But inside of BC Collateral, they had every camera there was. And I would walk down there every weekend to make a down payment, because you could do layaway back then, and to pay off my uh, my Spotmatic uh, with a 50mm 1.4 lens. The reason why Herzog pictures don't impress me that much is because that is exactly what what the whole place looked like. I mean, how can you get more idyllic buying a Spotmatic in a place that Herzog uh, did photograph? So I don't use it anymore because I can't really focus it and it's just not me, but I can't get rid of it because of that. Yeah, I think I would probably put that on the shelf. (laughs) Yeah, that has a good story. I mean, it was your camera from like, I mean, you put it on layaway, man. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Do you remember I'm, layaway? Yes, that was I do. a thing. <laughs> yes, I remember layaway very well. There was also something else you could do. It was like a Christmas fund, like oh, at Christmas. some stores, right? Like JCPenney and Mervyn's, right? 
Um, I remember that there was Christmas Club at the bank where it would take oh, yeah. a certain like very small amount of money out of your check every week. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it was a credit union thing. Yeah. I don't know if we have those anymore. No. no we just have credit. <laughs> hey, folks. Uh, Jellygeist here. Um, one camera that I don't use um, but I'll keep is a uh, Pentax KM, kind of a upper tier version of the K1000. My uncle gave it to me in a big box of Pentax cameras. He was an archaeologist and he took these things on digs and um, kind of really beat the shit out of them. And uh, But they still kept on trucking and other than a bit of a light leak issue, which was pretty minor, the KM really just kept on going and I, I learned a lot on it. And uh, that was kind of my uncle's kind of legacy. Uh, he passed away about a year after uh, he gave me that camera and he is kind of spirit of exploring and learning kind of stuck with that uh, camera. So he um, took it on every dig he went on, pretty sure. Yeah, I probably wouldn't get rid of it either. That's a good one. That was exactly kind of what I was thinking of when we were asking this question. And it was on digs. I mean, come on, that's just cool. Yeah, that is super cool. <laughs> Okay, so it's time for our answers, and let's have Eric go first. Yeah, um, well, I don't. I don't have a camera that I'm very sentimentally attached to, and I like it that way. You don't have your K1000 anymore? No. <gasps> I got rid of that a long time ago. Oh I, my gosh. Yeah. And it wasn't my, like, that wasn't my original K1000. Oh, okay. I don't know what happened to that. No idea. You know, I wish I had my dad's camera, which is a K1000, but I think he got rid of his original anyway. I think he, he, I think it just broke down after decades of use and he got another one somewhat recently. So it's not even like the camera, you know, maybe my grandfather's camera, but I don't know where those are. I don't, I just, I just have what I use. And um, I guess it's sad in a way. It's also a little liberating. Uh, this way I can say that I can get rid of any camera that I want. And, you know, sometimes I even do. <laughs> but really, I mean, the only cameras that I don't shoot with anymore, but I can't part with are the ones that just nobody fucking wants. <laughs> I mean, I have like, I have a lot of exactas. And honestly, I don't think I could inflict those upon people. Oh, uh, uh, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have two of them right now. Present company excluded, I guess. Wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So, uh, what about you? Well, I mean, I was thinking that I was going to talk about my mom's camera again, but I've already talked about that story. That's the one with the horse and... Yeah, the horse. <laughs> the horse hates the camera, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. But something actually uh, just recently uh, was given to me. I was gifted a camera from a very, very close family friend. His name was Jose. He called my mom, mom, and basically was at our house all the time. He used to come to every single one of our family trips. He was there for birthdays. He was just part of our family. And my family's very much like that. A lot of my friends probably, <laughs> if they're listening, they were like, yep, that sounds about right. Like we like to adopt people and it's just something that is really special to me. So Jose came by a week before I left for this recent trip and brought me his mother's camera. And he was like, I knew that you like cameras, you know, kind of the same story. Sure, <laughs> like, yeah. You like cameras. I have this camera. This was my mother's camera and she had just passed away and it was very sweet. And of course, I thanked him and I wasn't exactly sure what I would do with the camera, but I did end up putting film in it and I've shot about half of a roll. So, um, so yeah, he, he came by and of course we, you know, I met him outside. We, you know, had our social distant conversation and sure. talked a little bit about how his daughter is because he has a young daughter. She's about eight and just you know, life in general. And it had been a while since I seen him. So it was really nice. So while I was away, I heard the news that he had passed away. And um, I'm still trying to come to terms with that a little bit. I think that during this time, just finding like closure is been extremely difficult. I did call my brother, which really helped. I was able to tell him the last memory I had of Jose and he told me his. So I feel lucky that I was able to see him just recently. And uh, he gave me this wonderful camera and I'm going to keep it. I got through it. <laughs> I did. You got through it. You know, I mean, we, we heard from six different people, you know, with six different reasons for keeping cameras and and you know there's there's got to be other people out there who have cameras that are from you know people they loved and who aren't with them anymore 
and it's it's a lasting thing to have. It, it, it's such an honor that you're able to have it, you know. And it was his mom's camera, so he was shot with this camera, you know. And he, and he thought of you. You, we, we all, all of us, all of all of us get cameras kind of just handed off to us because we shoot film and like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. But and this was just one of those cases, you know. It was kind of a random camera that you got from, you know, yeah. from an old friend. Yeah, it's not even about like what kind of camera it is. It was just that like this person like was important to yeah. to us, and um, so this camera is important to me. Yeah, it was sweet that he like reached out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, one of the great things about photography is you know we, we're creating all these lasting memories and all that, but and that's with photos and that's wonderful. But you know, people think of us when they think of film photography because it's not not a lot of people do it anymore and one of the one of the neat things about that is when somebody hears about film photography a film a film photographer they love uh personally you know will will come to their mind and so they're thinking of us in these in these kind of random times you know they'll be in a thrift store or whatever like oh they find like an old film camera like oh i wonder if vanya would like this i wonder if eric would like this and maybe we wouldn't maybe we're just like oh god another fucking film camera but (laughs) the point is they're thinking about us and that's really wonderful absolutely i completely agree So a little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking about a photographer from Montana named Evelyn Cameron. She moved from England and kind of was a fish out of water and showed up in Montana and became a photographer. But first, we're talking to Kim Giannone. She, like Evelyn Cameron, was not from Montana originally. She moved there later in life and... I don't know. She moved there recently and has been photographing the hell out of the place, really, really living it up. Let's give Kim a call. Hello. (laughs) How's it going? (laughs) It's going great. Man, this is so weird. I'm known for going off on tangents, so you just got to wrangle me in, and it's okay. totally fine. Okay. We could have a safe word if you want. That's fine, too. Be like, try X, and I'll be like, oh, oh, tone it down, tone it down. Okay, it's chill. Um, I'm excited to kind of to move forward with you guys and, and see where you want to go with this. All right, wow. let's go for it, then. Okay. Um... Yeah, so okay. uh, my name's Kim Giannone. I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I am currently living in... Polaris, Montana, which is the middle of fucking nowhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's near Big Hole, isn't it? Uh, That's a rude question. Thanks. Um, (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Where I live in Polaris is in the Grasshopper Valley, which is adjoining to uh, the Big Hole Valley. Um, And we're just separated by a a little pass. So um, the Grasshopper and the Big Hole Valley are, they're two of the, they're two of the biggest ranching uh, valleys out here and southwest montana beaverhead county is a very big ranching community um pretty much everything out here is is ranching it's either ranching or recreation but primarily okay. ranching so okay you're from philly originally kind of seems yeah. like the exact opposite of montana <laughs> so, yeah so how long have you been in montana why are you there and like what what really draws you to the state what keeps you there i grew up in the big city of philadelphia i was an inner city kid and photographically actually street photography is like what got me into photography so i was like constantly surrounded by bodies and people and things and just nonstop stimulation and I didn't see nature until I was 20, I think 20 years old. So I'd never seen like mountains or anything like that. And I did, was lucky, went on a family vacation with my best friend's family and I went to the Tetons and I was just like, oh my, like how, this doesn't look real. How is this? What is this? <laughs> and I, in my brain, I honestly thought that the only way that I could ever be in those places is if I was a wealthy person, uh, cause I just thought nature was for rich people. I got a job in Yellowstone National Park when I was 24. That was my first time ever being in Montana. And I just, in my heart, I knew it was where I wanted to be. I just didn't know how I could do it. I think I spent a long time in my life working in national parks just so I could like have, you know, have access to these places. Working in national parks in concessions is not... (laughs) 
it's rewarding on a lot of levels, but it's you're never really going to go for me. I was never going to go anywhere and I was always going to be doing this kind of slave labor work for nothing and watching every single person on vacation, like having a vacation and just not really accessing that place in the way that I really wanted to access it. So long story short, I wound up like hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and the Appalachian Trail and just kind of realizing over time that like I don't have to fit into some weird, stupid mold to live somewhere. And then my boyfriend and I, as we were driving cross country from Florida to Alaska in a vanigan for five months, we stopped here. Housing's really limited. The economy is very limited. Like you can't, you can only live here if you're a rancher, if you're rich, and this is like some willy nilly third house for you or but yeah, it was hard. I was making like, you know, 10 bucks an hour and working my ass off at the same, I was in the same boat where I was like here, but like working all the time and not being able to access it maybe in the way that I was hoping I could access it and be in it. So that's how I kind of success, I guess I would say luckily and successfully um, was able to like go from this like crazy, like city, you know, person with all these other things in between to living and settling down in Polaris, Montana, and becoming an active part of my community here. So, yeah, I don't want to say they're like exclusive, but in a lot of ways they are. And I understand why, um, because they are trying to preserve their own culture and community. And like, obviously, when new people come in, um, it can change things drastically. Like I watched that happen in Philadelphia and it was really hard for me watching Philadelphia turn into a small New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, So out here, like when I got here, I, I got that. Like, I knew that. And they, I think they knew that I was never trying to, like, come out here and, like, change anything. That I wanted to just actively understand it better and, like, be a part of it. Also, I think the fact that I wasn't very financially, uh, Ryan and I are pretty, I think poor is just an easy way to say it. We don't have a lot of money. We've been dirtbags for a long time. So, like, they knew we weren't going to come here and, like, (laughs) build some, like, bed and breakfast for Bozeman people. Um, And not only that, like, we were very active in our community. Like, we would always help people, um, and they would help us. So what do you have, like, what plans do you have with uh, the photos you're taking right now in Montana? (laughs) I would like to continue documenting a lot of these ranchers uh, and documenting their, what their, like, their traditions and work are. A, to hold the history of their family's ranches. Yeah. B, to, like kind of preserve the history of the big hole and in the grasshopper valley and see because it's changing uh, <laughs> and it's also a better way to understand people I, I am very different than a lot of these people i have extremely different values because i didn't grow up here yeah. i have different ideas of how i think the world should be because i didn't grow up here i have probably I mean, I know for a fact I have different political views. I think when I spend time with them, like, in their world and they let me into their world, like, the level of trust that I get to share with them is so serious and sincere that, like, I almost want to take this project to show, like, the rest of the world, maybe, that even though people are so insanely divided and different, like, at the end of the day, we're all the same people. Yeah. Them letting me in their world, even though they think I'm, like, a whatever they call me, like, a libtard or a... (laughs) Uh, So a few few years ago, you said you hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and that's, if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's basically a a hiking trail that goes from Mexico to Canada. Uh, You partially funded that through shooting film, and we kind of just wanted to, like, talk a little bit about that, how how that was as far as, like, the experience of, you know, doing a project like that, you know, on, while, while hiking, (laughs) like, in weather and... (laughs) (laughs) film photography uh was my first true love and i actually funded my entire pacific crest trail hike by doing that project oh Oh, wow which is crazy so i started the trail very naive thinking that i had i was going to be able to do the trail with like nothing which is just dumb and stupid and unprepared and so when i was hiking i quickly realized like fuck i'm gonna run out of money in like two weeks i'm not gonna be able to do this um so i was kept like jogging my mind like how can i make this work how can I do this? I knew I was going to be shooting photographs anyway. My One of my really good friends, Jackson Gruber, um, shout out to Jackson. He owns Indie Photo Lab in Philadelphia, and he still processes film. Cool. Um, but Jackson had just opened Indie Photo Lab, and he agreed very nicely to sponsor me if I would ship my film to him. He'd process it for me. And that kind of was like, and he would like put me on his Instagram page or whatever, um, which was great. 
But then I was also working with Paradigm Magazine. My friend Theo Constantino is the owner. I was in the right place at the right time. So I called Theo and I said, hey, um, maybe can I write something for your magazine in installments so maybe we can like sell prints or something like that. And then he and Jackson really engineered that into like a full-blown project. So uh, I was just hiking with a Yashica T4. I also had a Contax. Um, and the Contax was too heavy and I was having issues with it. And Because if you're doing that many miles a day, you can't. It's just too much. But like... My, my T4 was perfect. The film, amount of film that I was carrying was like just right. Because like I really just couldn't go any much more than what I was carrying. It worked for me. And the, the heat was fucked. Like I screwed up a bunch of film. Um, stuff got wet. I went through two T4s on the trail. Uh, my camera got, fell off the side of a mountain. Uh, there was a lot. I just had like... I had all these like crazy problems. <laughs> like, and it was crazy. Like I was lucky. I'd get into these towns... After hiking, I'd go 110 miles. I'd get into a town. I'd take all my film that I shot. I'd ship it off to Indie Photo Lab. Jackson would get my film. And between him and Theo, they'd figure out which five images they wanted to use for this project. They were selling limited edition prints. Yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah, and I was selling for nothing. Like, it was insane. I think <laughs> I was only selling them for 30 bucks or something like that. And I wound up making 4000 fucking dollars, like, wow. on this trail. Like, just... Yeah, wow. it was nuts. Like, guys, I fucking hate landscape photography. <laughs> like, I hate it. I like looking at other people's landscape photography. Like, I love looking at other people's work, but I personally am not, I don't think I'm good at it. And I don't, I like people. I feel and the so same for, way. <laughs> uh, well, you got some good landscapes, so whatever. Um, but I was, here I was, like, making a living. I was making my living off of selling landscape photographs. Um, Crazy. Yeah, well, what can you do? Oh, so I do have a question about the landscapes really quick. I noticed that their color usually and then your close-up are are black and white. Is that is that like an actual thing or my bullshit? <laughs> You're not. Um, color was my first. I I always hated black and white photography. Um, and I just never was into it. It wasn't the way that I saw the world. And I will say this: You're not full of shit entirely. I didn't actually start shooting black and white until I started photographing ranchers. Really. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, like on a technical realm, well, first of all, they like it better. They like seeing their images in black and white better. They enjoy it better. They're more into the black and white thing. And so I started to like do that for them um, mm -hmm. as I was photographing them. But in the middle of a branding, and this is going to sound so sad, you're going to be like, really, that's it? Um, but when you're photographing something as hectic as a branding, there is so much shit going on. So, like, the color, with all of the colors, there's just too much. Like, mm. it's almost really hard to create a painterly image. I'm not good enough digitally. I can do it with with color film, but, like, digitally, I have a really hard grasp on color. I hate it. I'm not, I'm not good at it, and I refuse to run any of my digital images through a film filter because I think that's bullshit. I do not <laughs> like that. Uh, when I got into documentary photography when I was younger, like I had two types of photography I was doing. I was doing documentary photography and I was doing street photography. And I noticed that when I was doing documentary photography, I would always shoot black and white. <laughs> Hmm. It's just, but I was also photographing people a lot. And uh, sometimes I wonder if the simplicity of black and white can allow someone's character to come through without being distracted. When I'm shooting color, there is definitely a design aspect to what I'm doing. And it, I feel like the photograph necessarily isn't about the person. It's more about the image and the image that I'm trying to create. Uh, and the black and white photos are definitely just about the subject. Like, they're straight on about the subject I'm shooting. There's no painterliness. There's no design ethic. There's, like, me having the ability to, like, try to grasp something that I'm looking at and make an image from it. <laughs> I went to school. I went to school for photography when the basically like the entire world shifted, and it was awful. Um, I learned how to shoot photos on a four by five camera, um, and I photographed with an eight by ten Deerdorf. I've done like all kinds of different photography um, that was considered to be like ancient at the time. I know the zone system. Um, you know, basically my entire first like inklings of real photography were very technically driven through old school processes. And so when I graduated from my little trade school of photography, I went to New England School of Photography, digital legitimately just took over the entire world. And it was for me the most heartbreaking, awful 
sad, terrible thing that could ever have... I hated it. I hated it, and I fought it. I fought it until, like, four years ago. And uh, <laughs> when Polaroid went out of business, I lost my goddamn mind. Like, it was awful. Mike Brody, so Mike Brody was a guy that I taught how to shoot with a film camera. Mike shot Polaroids for... That's what he learned on. So for him, his transition was even like more ridiculous. It's like, oh yeah, he had a really hard time. So I still do shoot like medium format. Mm -hmm. I shoot and I haven't bought a, a full frame digital camera yet because I know once I do, I just know I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to be with film anymore and I'm not ready for that. So I'm not ready for like a trophy wife at all. <laughs> <laughs> like you're, you're maybe making a slide uh, to digital a little yeah. bit, but could you see maybe making the slide completely out of photography? Like, so could you see yourself going in that direction? I did stop photographing for a long time. I quit for a multitude of reasons. And Mike Brody, Mike Brody and I had this conversation in 2008. I was in Montana. And every single time I go past this place, I think about this conversation because it was, and it was one of the most important conversations I've ever had as my, in my life as a photographer. I was standing in front of a coffee shop and I was on the phone on my flip phone with Mike Brody. And, um, Mike called me in this like crazy panic and he was just like Kim I, I think I'm done with photography I'm so tired and I was like well what do you mean and he said my life is so epic and so amazing and I've had these crazy adventures and I feel like I've never lived one of these moments because I'm constantly stressed about making an image and I was like fuck <laughs> I was like fuck, you, you're totally you're right dude like you are so and he he got into this really deep conversation with me about living and breathing and being there and feeling like he's like this slave to his camera and a slave to like what he's supposed to produce in order to be a successful photographer and it was a hard conversation to have because i realized like man like that's i stopped shooting pretty much in 2008 um for a little while i mean i didn't really make images for almost two years and then i started shooting again was it because of that conversation with mike yeah because okay. i was like you know what you're right like i would like to see what it's like to not worry about constantly and i worked in yellowstone for my second season that summer and i really didn't make any photographs at all hmm. um and i just lived i lived life and it was awesome and i was like pumped about it for a change it's like oh i'm actually like waking up and i'm not thinking about photography or i'm not like you know when you're when you're a photographer and especially a film photographer light is it's everything i mean yeah. you pay attention to the light for every fucking moment every single thing <laughs> so you do like everything 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 like you wake up and you're like wow the light's really good or you go outside and you're like wow the light's really good or you're in your bathroom like brushing your teeth and you're like holy shit the light's really good right now like <laughs> it's so you, true <laughs> you can't do anything like every single thing you see or feel becomes an image and it becomes an image of what can be and like does it what does it make it because once you make that an image once it's really an image it's a memory that's not necessarily a true memory it's a memory yeah. you've created and so like when i would think about mike brody i'd just be like how much of my life is actually curated and how much of it am i actually living and that was a really hard psychological thing for me to understand um and i wound up getting back into photography it was only a year, I think a year and a half because I started to, I just, I've had a relationship with it. Like I can't, you can't stay away from it. And it started to creep back in my life and then it started to make itself very necessary again. And then it started to make itself known. And would I ever stop? Yeah, I did stop. Um, can I stop now? Absolutely not. There's no way it's not happening. Like, it's so bad. I basically went backwards. Like now I quit my job. Um, I started my own photo business and I have luckily been kind of doing okay so far. Yeah, I don't know. Photography has like saved my life and it's also made me almost end my life. So it's a really intense it's a really fucked up relationship, but I'm really glad we're back together. <laughs> I know, I am <laughs> We have the final question that we also ask our listeners to call in about. This time, and in, it's it's actually sort of geared towards you, because you have shot and you've lived a lot of places, you've shot a lot of places, but is there a place that you've never visited, never been to, that you really long to photograph? <sighs> yeah, my friend is, she's from Finland, and I've been, like, wanting to go visit her forever because I really wish I could go there. I mean, I'd love to go to Finland. I'd like to go to Sweden. I'd love to go to pretty much that whole area, probably because I can't fathom, like, just how extreme it is yeah. in some ways. Like, I've seen photographs there, and it looks like it's this insanely lush, crazy place in some manners, and then it's, like, the darkest place ever. 
also. So it doesn't, it's like, I almost want to go to this place to see these extremes um, and to explore. I actually almost did a through hike over there as well. Oh, cool. Oh, um, wow. But she, like, talking to her and talking to another guy that's from, um, he was from Sweden. Like, just talking to the both of them and, like, kind of their sense of humor and them showing me pictures on their iPhones and stuff. I'd be like, <laughs> oh, I was like, I need to go here. And they'd always be like, yeah, dude, you got to come here and and take pictures like you'd love it it seems like a very strange and mysterious world nice. i see that for sure nice. <laughs> That's all. all right cool i actually too need to get going in a minute i have to photograph a horse <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's so rad great thank you it was nice talking to you yes thank you so much for coming <laughs> on <laughs> if you come out here to photograph i can tell you a lot of cool places to go and obviously i'd want to go for some of it so yes yeah yeah that is definitely a plan montana is on our very very short list as listeners will find out uh in a few minutes (laughs) (laughs) all right take care you guys all right all right bye guys bye The story of an unknown photographer who died, leaving her incredibly important work to basically disappear into obscurity, only to be rediscovered decades later, might sound a little familiar. But we're betting you haven't heard this one before. Evelyn Jefferson Flower was born August 26th, 1868, just south of London, England. Her father was a wealthy merchant from the India Trading Company, and her mother was a composer. Through her youth, she wasn't exactly what you'd call a proper Victorian lady. She preferred the outdoors and longed for adventure. Just over 20 years old, Evelyn met and fell in love with Ewan Cameron, an eccentric man a few steps below her on the class ladder. From an early age, Ewan was restless. He had lived in Belgium and Milan before settling for a time on the remote Scottish island of Einhollow. There was just him, a 12th century monastery, and the birds, and maybe the finfolk. Mm, Look it up. Uh, Somehow or another, Ewan became friends with Evelyn's older brother, Percy. This is how he met Evelyn. Uh, Whatever the arrangement, Evelyn's parents did not approve of Ewan. First, he was poor. Second, he was weird. And third... Well, he was married to an opera singer. When Evelyn turned 21, she had become financially independent from her family and really didn't care what they thought. Both Evelyn and Ewan left for America in the fall of 1889 together, even though he was married. To an opera singer. (laughs) They also might have also been married, but the records are a little fuzzy on timing, so we're not sure. So regardless of all of that, Ewan's first marriage, the one to the opera singer, it was annulled about a month into their journey. So no problem. Their reasoning for going to America and Montana in particular was that it was sort of the thing to do at the time. There were a few English colonies cropping up in the United States, good British folks making new lives for themselves in the wilds of the Wild West. When they arrived in Montana, they rented a small ranch along the Powder River. Falling in love with the area, they returned to England and got all their stuff to make the final and permanent move to Montana. When they returned, they tried out a couple of the ranches before purchasing Eve Ranch near the small town of of Terry in 1893. It was also then that Evelyn began to keep a daily diary, and it's from her diaries that we learn all about her ranching life. The Eve Ranch was a small three-room log cabin with a stone foundation. Compared to their previous houses, this was, as Evelyn described, a castle. There was a year-round stream nearby and abundant wildlife. Their goal was to make a living raising horses. The grass was free, it was Montana, and they both knew a great deal about them since they grew up with them. Before long, their financials were in question. Shortly after moving into the new digs, Ewan bounced his second check trying to buy horses. Money was tight, creditors were already calling, and they were just getting started. Soon, the entire ranch was mortgaged. And shortly after moving into Eve Ranch, they understood that horses, they they just weren't going to cut it for them. They had to make ends meet, and for the time being, that meant taking in boarders. The first was Evelyn's brother, Alec, a spoiled, prank-pulling sort who nobody really seemed to want around. Nobody liked this guy. But he paid, so they had little choice. Soon other boarders followed. Each had to share a room with Alec. The first was named Adams. He was somehow Alec's friend, and he wanted to invest in the ranch. This arrangement should have worked, but bratty Alec kind of made it horrible for him. That said, and this is kind of what we're getting to with all of this, it was Adams, the boarder who introduced Evelyn to photography, what our podcast is about, teaching her the basics with his camera. Uh, It was never mentioned what camera he had, 
But it was under his direction that Evelyn purchased her first camera, and when it arrived, Adams showed her the ropes. In a letter to her mother, dated August 1894, Evelyn wrote that Mr. Adams showed me how to change plates in his room. Great business to exclude all the light. Moon in full blast. There's no record of what her first camera was. All we know is that it didn't have a shutter. To expose the film or glass, you'd load the plates and remove the lens cap, counting the number of seconds for the proper exposure, and then refit the cap. This was typical of early cameras, though by 1890s, shutters were almost universal. She had bought the only camera that they could afford. Still in dire need of income, Ewan came up with the idea that they should sell the ranch and move back to one of the islands off of Scotland. There, Ewan could write about the flora and Evelyn could photograph it. She liked the idea, but wanted to stay and photograph Montana instead. Determined to make it work, she and Adam set out to take photos. Her first was, as she put it in her diary, an utter failure. Rereading the manual, she determined that it was the wind. On the second outing, the sun was too bright. Remember, her camera had no shutter. Now, real quick, can you imagine <laughs> living in a time where your only resource on how to photograph things, how to figure out what you're doing wrong, is the manual that came with the camera? Can't just drive to a store and get more film either. <laughs> Not really, no. Anyway, as soon as her camera arrived, the word got around to other ranchers. They began clamoring to have their likenesses taken. Evelyn agreed, charging $1 per photo. In her first session, she had to refund half the money as half the photos just didn't turn out. But by the end of summer of 1894, Adams had enough of Alec and Montana and returned across the sea. Taking his place was Collie, weirdly similar to Adams in that he too wished to invest in the ranch and was a photographer. Collie brought with him a small roll film camera. Camera, one that could take 40 photos without changing the film. He spent much of the time taking snapshots of the Camerons. Evelyn sent them to her mother, who complained about Ewan having a beard. Likely because of this, Evelyn sent more. While she liked the convenience of roll film, the quality just didn't match up to her plates. Knowing that she wanted to photograph wildlife, Collie suggested a small Kodak. This would allow her to get close and take a few backup shots. Still, she wasn't convinced. In June of 1895, she purchased a Kodak No. 5 Kodet. This is a 5x7 plate camera. It had a shutter and everything. Today we think of roll film as small compared to large format, but Evelyn's Kodet not only took 5x7 plates, but it also took 5-inch wide roll film. She was excited about this. It was much lighter than the heavy glass plates and the holders. She described the ordeal of photographing some taxidermy deer heads in her diary, July 20th, 1895. Tried our codet. Spent all morning and afternoon over one photo. Ewan and I took a photo of the heads on west wall of storehouse. But in winding the camera, I waited to hear the click that never came, and so wound off five films. I ought to have watched the register. Made me feel very sore. On top of that, roll film was horrible for making contact prints, which is how she planned to make the bulk of her income. Also, she had to burn through an entire roll of film prior to developing it. She simply didn't shoot that fast. And so that was it for her and roll film, really. If she absolutely needed to lighten her load, she'd use 5x7 cut film sheets. Mostly, however, she just used glass. And for the rest of her life, she'd be shooting on glass. Also, it's really interesting how she did try, she you know, <laughs> to to change that a little. Like, okay, I'm going to try this roll film. It is lighter and, you know, yeah. but she made the decision like, no, the quality of glass is just much better. I, I guess it was, yeah. I mean, we think of glass now as kind of maybe a little lesser quality than film. But it was through photography that the couple stayed afloat. They continued to ranch horses, but would more than supplement their income through Evelyn's photography and Ewan's articles for nature magazines, which were usually illustrated by Evelyn's work. These ornithological rambles were our greatest pleasure in life, she later recalled, but she was no mere bird watcher. Close to the ranch and the town of Terry are the Terry Badlands, and having been there, I can assure you this is some incredibly rugged ground. I was only able to get in a tiny bit without like actually full-on hiking it. It's unforgiving and kind of remote for where you are, but both Evelyn and Ewan took to it. In January of 1897, she and Ewan were out on a ramble when she went off on her own to find unusual rock formations. She spent the entire cold day on horseback with a seven-pound camera around her waist and a tripod in a rifle scabbard. Two winters later, Evelyn stumbled upon a petrified tree that had fallen across a wash, creating a natural bridge. Her first instinct was to photograph it, which she did the following day. 
She brought not only her camera, tripod, and plates, but an axe, which she used to chop down the cedar trees, blocking her view. <laughs> Shortly after, she took a few portraits of herself sitting precariously on a 75-foot-long, 15-inch-wide narrow bridge. Her skirt kept snagging as she crawled her way onto it, and though she was generally fearless, she thought better than crawling out too far. She photographed herself reading the British magazine The Bystander and submitted the photo for a contest. The magazine later published the photo as well. And I've seen this photo, <laughs> and I, I do not understand. How did she photograph herself doing this? It's well, I mean, Ewan, I think Ewan was there. And he probably you think pushed so? the button. Because she says that she photographed herself. I think she just says that. In this case, she set up the shot and mm -hmm. had Ewan, who was, you know, a, a capable person. Basically, Ewan pushed the button. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes sense. We um sharing this photo on on Instagram and, and the show notes. Uh, this is one of my favorite photos of her. Though by f but, but there's so many photos of hers that are my favorites of hers. And we'll be sharing hopefully a lot of these. <laughs> So uh, this was a photograph of herself, and Evelyn often photographed herself. In one case, she made a photo album of her ranch life for her nieces back home. She showed them around the place with the camera and also showed them how she did her own housework, which was a complete novelty to this wealthy family who relied on over a dozen servants to get anything done. In some photos, Evelyn photographed the scene with her back to the sun, purposely casting the shadow of her tripod, the camera, herself, and, and her pith helmet onto the frame. So basically, she was kind of taking selfies before it was even a thing. It was it was a cross between a <laughs> selfie and in this case with the shadows, it's, it was kind of a signature. Yeah, yeah. She did she did do a lot of self portraits. Yes, though. and I think for the same reason that a lot of people do selfies now. It's kind of a uh, you need a subject. You, you're there, so you may as well may as well use yourself. Yeah. But rambling across the Terry Badlands was her true love. In another early ramble in 1903, she photographed a huge five-foot-wide golden eagle's nest with two eggs in it. To gain access to the shot, she had to dangle with her massive camera off a cliff overlooking the nest. Ewan wrote about this himself in one of the magazines. It was possible to climb to a north ledge of the rock immediately over and about a yard above the Erie. But the whole pillar behind was seamed with a gaping fissure, which threatened immediate collapse, while a sheer precipice yawned to the front, or west. From this precarious position, the accompanying photographs were nevertheless taken. He was obviously really, I mean, his wife was badass. Yeah, And he was absolutely. clearly proud of her. <laughs> I would be too. <laughs> Evelyn fell in love with this little eagle family, and before long, they grew accustomed to her. The eaglets, once hatched, had never knew a time when this amazing woman with a camera wasn't part of their lives. For the most part, they ignored her and allowed her to shoot frame after frame of them. This went on for three years, 1903 to 1905. They even convinced fellow ranchers not to kill the eagles, even if the birds made off with a lamb or two. But white ranchers and their carelessness won out over the Camerons. Soon, due to trapping, egg-stealing, poisoning, and hunting, eagles in Montana would be all but extinct. However, it was through adventures like this that the local ranchers began pointing the couple in the direction of other wildlife to photograph. They eventually tamed a few hawks and even got them to pose for the camera. Yeah, the, this one I would like for us to share also because it's just absolutely amazing. <laughs> you can tell that she's looking at the camera a little bit, but most of her eyes on the hawk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she definitely liked birds. She loved birds, yes. Once the photos of the area were captured, she and Ewan would make prints to sell. Ewan helped her with printing. It's actually a, um, a really wonderful, wonderful photo of Evelyn. Um, I don't know if she's making prints or examining prints or just staging one of oh, those. Oh, with the kitty. So Ewan helped her with the printing, but she didn't really care for his work. He always liked to print his prints light, she complained. I like them darker. Hmm. It does, it's, we've had this argument ourselves a lot. I like yes. my photos a little bit darker. You like your photos a little bit lighter. And I'm always I darkening do. yours, and you're always lightening mine. Yep. <laughs> but however, they got made. Evelyn sold them in Terry and Fallon post offices. She'd make albums with a dozen or so photos in them, selling them for $5 a piece. Her mounted photos sold for 25 cents a piece. The post offices kept about a 10% commission. She would also shoot the railroad workers while they were passing through the area, selling their photos back to them before they left. By 1905, she'd been shooting the Coda for a decade. It was outdated and worn by then, and after all, she'd gone on countless expeditions with it slung over her shoulder, tied to her hip, and on horseback. Yeah, amazing. 
With glass plates, with glass by the plates, way. Yeah. She had some contact with some other local photographers, and one of them allowed her to experiment with his 8x10 using 8x10 plates, but she just wasn't sold on it. She really loved the 5x7 format. Somehow scrounging together the money in the late summer of 1905, she purchased Lexi, a brand new tourist Graflex 5x7 with a Gore's lens, paying about 255 for it. That's about $6,000 in today's money. Lexi would be her camera through the rest of her career. Anything shot after the summer of 1905 was on Lexi. Though her camera might have changed, her work really didn't. The photos shot with Lexi are more crisp, they're newer looking, I guess, but are generally the same subjects. They're, they're wildlife, it's ranch life, and as before, she sometimes got a little too close to the wildlife. In 1908, she tried to photograph an antelope. She wrote that, it charged full at the tripod. In a courageous effort to save the instrument, the lady photographer behind it caught her foot in her skirt and fell backwards, and the triumphant antelope was upon her in a moment. Fortunately, the buck's strength does not equal its pugnacity, and the recumbent photographer with great dexterity managed to hold the tripod in one hand while firmly grasping her assailant's horn with the other until released from this awkward position. And as before, she also photographed people. She traveled days to shoot her portraits, most most of the area ranchers were captured, many working in the fields, something she would shoot now as she had a faster shutter. She photographed school children, something she did but didn't exactly relish, which I get, yeah. <laughs> and newly married couples as well. Her work became very similar to many photo studios, except that she had no studio. She went to her subjects, photographing them as they lived. Much of this work is published in Evelyn Cameron, Montana's Frontier Photographer by Christy Hager. Hager selected the bulk of the book's photos from Cameron's later period when she shot with Lexi. I strongly recommend it because it's, it's a wonderful example of her later period where she was able to go into the fields and shoot them harvesting wheat and, and being in the fields. It's, it's very much not quite candid because a lot of it's posed. But mm -hmm. the photos are a great example of what Montana was like in the early 1900s. Evelyn's sense of humor was expressed in her photos. There's a portrait of herself standing on top of her horse, which is another one of my favorites. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a favorite of mine as well. It's interesting, like, for this period, a lot of her subjects are smiling. Yes. Or appearing, like, trying to not laugh, which is kind of interesting. A lot of her photos from this period, you can tell she's making them laugh. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the times, it's the women who are breaking. So I don't know if the, the if she was making fun of the men in the photos, or I don't know. We can only just write, write Evelyn Cameron fan fiction at this point, which honestly, wouldn't mind doing. <laughs> but there, there's such a jolliness and joy to her photography. Especially mm -hmm. with people, not the, not the children so much, but the adults. <laughs> she didn't like photographing children. But the adults, uh, there's really like a joy to them. And it's, it's very rare that you see some of her photos that are very super serious. Mm -hmm. There is one, however, that is uh, very serious. And it's the, the last photo, I guess the last photo she took of Ewan. We'll post that one as well. It's him posed with a, a stuffed swan, I think, or, or a bird of some kind. One of the authors of these books calls it a death mask. And it kind of is in a way. It was, I think it was shot maybe a year before he died. But it was a very serious and loving photo. And she had a few of those. So she kind of ran the gamut. As Ewan and Evelyn grew older, uh, Ewan became ill. Uh, and because of that, they decided to leave Montana for the winters and starting in 1914. They moved around to a few locations, uh, Salt Lake City being one of them, until they settled in a rented cottage on Long Beach, California. By this time, uh, Ewan was in a wheelchair and Evelyn was doing everything to keep him well. After moving him to a sanitarium in Pasadena, he died on May 25th, 1915 of liver and brain cancer. Following his funeral and burial in California, Evelyn returned to Montana. Now 50 years old, she still photographed and worked the ranch, never remarrying. She learned to love her solitude. I think living alone is very agreeable, she wrote. No dissension, no annoyances from others. Though she had some bouts of melancholy, as she puts it, she enjoyed the final years of her life, sometimes shooting with a smaller Graflex 3A, 3.25 camera, though never roll film. She died from heart failure related to an appendectomy in December of 1928. She was buried in Terry, Montana. And you've actually visited her gravestone. Yeah, when I was uh, in Terry, I stopped by her gravestone. Uh, I shot, I think, uh, two sheets with it and maybe a a few other random roll film pictures and uh -oh. I, I i know she would not approve she would not i left her <laughs> a roll of uh fuji 200 35 millimeter i thought maybe she could maybe use it i don't know 
but uh, <laughs> she's all thanks. Roll film. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I'm not really moved by cemeteries or or things like that so much. It doesn't really what moves me. What mo- what moved me about the area was the the area in general, and seeing her prints and all of that, which we'll get to in a moment. But yeah, being at her grave was it was the last thing I did before leaving, I believe, and it was kind of a fitting way to kind of close it out. After she died, her collection as well as Eve Ranch fell to her best friend Janet Williams, who had been a sort of unofficial daughter to the Camerons. There's a, a great photo of both of, of both Evelyn and Janet in a doorway together. And so with Janet, it remained until the 1970s. It was then that Donna M. Lucy, an editor of Time Life Books, was scouring collections for photos of the Old West. She wanted to see more photos by women and caught wind of an older woman who had a stash of old plates near Terry, Montana. This older woman was, of course, Janet Williams. So Donna took a greyhound to Terry in August of 1979 to meet Janet, who is now 95 years old. Janet met her at the station. She had resisted any previous inquiries about the photos, but for some reason, Donna was different. After a day or so, they visited the old Eve Ranch, then dilapidated, now bulldozed under the current owner of the land. Upon returning to Janet's house, she showed Donna the collection. There, she found 1,800 plates, 2,500 prints, and 35 years of diaries, along with Evelyn's various belongings. The plates, the prints, the diaries, the papers, and Lexi were sent to the archives at the Montana Historical Society in Helena, which is where they are now. Donna Lucy published a book about Evelyn, which included well over a hundred of her photos, beautifully reproduced. There's another book by Lorna Milne about Evelyn's life, and another by Christy Hager that focused more on her photography, with very little commentary. If you want to see the work of Evelyn Cameron, this is really the only way to do it. While the original plates and most of the prints are archived in Helena, there are two galleries and a museum containing her work in Terry. The best place to start would be the Evelyn Cameron Gallery, run by the Prairie County Museum. It contains a generous amount of her photos, as well as a slew of her belongings, including her pith helmet, which you got to see, right? I did! I got to see her pith helmet. (laughs) I got to see her her trunk that she carried from England with her old initials on it. Oh, that is so cool. Dresses. Oh, there's a lot of stuff of hers there. It's really wonderful. In the back is a research room with her entire collection of diaries. You got to see that. Yeah, you have access to those as well. The original diaries are in the the archives, of course, and they're brittle. So they're just the trans yeah, someone went through them back in the uh, 90s, I think, and typed them all out. And so we have them now preserved, and the words preserved and available. So all 36 volumes are available to look through. And I did. I looked through and I found some of her earliest entries about photography. And it was it was moving. It was really moving. That's awesome. Yeah. The other gallery run by Evelyn Cameron Heritage, Inc. contains the prints that Evelyn made herself. That also, you would say, is a, a central stop, right? Yeah, yeah. You should, I mean, you're there. Do it. Yeah. So, and then I was. Last summer, I visited Terry and the Prairie County Museum. Uh, inside the Prairie County Museum, there's an old bank vault. I think it was an old bank, actually. And But inside the bank vault is the entire collection of contact prints made from every single one of Evelyn's plates held in the archives in Helena. The gentleman running the place, an older fella, nice, he opened the door for me and left me alone for hours. <laughs> and so with cotton gloves, I paged through binder after binder of contact prints. I saw not only her most famous photo, photos, but her mistakes. I saw her outtakes. Uh, I saw her trying one angle first and then another if that one didn't work. I saw her light leaks. I saw her overexposures and I saw her camera issues, the wind that she was talking about. Seeing everything she produced, it really it humanized her for me. Uh, this wasn't just some badass woman who photographed the beauty of Montana. It, it was that, but she was also a photographer who fucked up like I did, often making a lot of the same mistakes that we all make and at the same time making some amazingly beautiful photos, just like we all do. And this can teach us such a valuable lesson about our photographic heroes and about photography. What our favorite photographers present to us is generally their best work. And that's understandable. It's what we do on Instagram and what we do in our zines. But it's not the entire truth of their work. And in the back room of this cluttered county museum is the truth of Evelyn Cameron's work. And while it made her endlessly more accessible to me, it gave me a confidence in myself that I'd never had before. You could look at her fuck-ups and her beauty and say, I fuck up like this, but I also make beautiful photos like this. 
<laughs> well, so the unfortunate thing about Evelyn Cameron's work is that you have to travel to Terry, Montana to see it. Her collection is not available online. Evelyn Cameron Heritage Inc. has a few on their website, but there are watermarks all over them, of course. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn's photos, uh, because they're so old, they do fall into the public domain. Legally, there's nothing stopping anyone from publishing these photos in an online gallery for the world to freely access. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the Montana Historical Society is going to digitize her work. Uh, it's also incredibly unlikely they'd allow some rando to wander in there and do it for them, especially since these are glass plates. But the Prairie County Museum, with all the contact prints, just might be open to that idea. Yeah, possibly. So Eric and I um, actually have talked about doing this before we even started the podcast. When this whole COVID thing is over, we want to travel to Terry, Montana, digitize the entire collection of contact prints and publish them all online for people to access for free. Yes. Uh, of course, uh, even if she is in the public domain, we would need the kind permission of the museum to do this since we'd be using their time and their photos and all of that. This project would take Days, but those would be amazing days. Terry <laughs> and the Terry Badlands, where Evelyn and Ewan lived, explored, and photographed, are beautiful places. Having been there only once, I absolutely cannot wait to return again. So this may seem like a long shot, but I think that we're pretty determined to make this happen. I would like to visit both of us yes. with our scanners and finally bring Evelyn's work into the 21st century. So because Vanya and I love zines and love people sharing their work, each episode we do our best to feature and review two or more, hopefully, zines sent in by you guys, the listeners. And so this episode is no different. We've got two. First up, Vanya, what do you got? I have Car Distancing by Ben Yant. I think we've all been trying to find ways to keep busy and be creative. Car distancing is Ben's first scene, and he's set the bar high for himself. He talks a little bit about his childhood and his fascination with cars. He wasn't intentionally shooting for a zine, but more photographing things that intrigued him. He has always been into cars and the freedom that they offer you. This first issue is very well put together. There are some great spreads throughout, as well as some smaller images to make up use of negative space. He used both color and black and white films as well. One of my favorite images Ben took is the Cadillac with what looks like a Batman shadow. Holy hole in a donut! It's dramatic and it's something you only see at certain times of the day. Uh, there are a lot of images of cars here, obviously, but there's a lot of detail shots like one of a steering wheel or a car peeking out of the shadows. In one shot, the sun shines just a tiny bit on top of a bumper and it looks like the car is smiling. It actually makes me quite happy. <laughs> I think that when anybody enjoys or loves something and they photograph those things, it's not like they're just shooting off pictures to make a zine. The zine comes from a very creative and loving place. When people show a little bit about themselves and their work, you get to see through their eyes for a moment. You get to see how people photograph things differently. Uh, it's a small run. I got the second copy out of 50. I don't know what you got. What did you get? I got seventh. I'm his seventh favorite person. I would definitely maybe send him a DM. I'm not sure how he's mailing these out. I don't think he has an Etsy yet, but it's at DDS on Instagram. DDS? Yeah, he's a dentist. What? Yeah. Hi. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. Let's go. I have a history of dental problems. Shut up! <laughs> All right, what do you have? Well, I have got Film and Foreigner Volume 2. Now, it seems... Yes! This is Robert Burton's second zine. It seems like we just reviewed his first zine, Film and Foreigner, and we loved it. We gushed about that thing. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We really liked it. Well, I, I got this one in the mail, too, and I was like, holy shit! Yes. And, <laughs> and we... Uh, fucking love this one too, didn't we? The whole thing is a color implosion of color. This is essentially street scenes and close-ups taken in Tokyo. While the first issue combines some black and white with color and various locations, this one is a full color exploration of the streets. If I had to, if, 
I mean, I love this scene. We both love this scene. It's a great yes. scene. It is a little delayed at the printer right now, but it will be coming out shortly. But, but if I had to make one complaint about this, and it would be that there are too few cats. You've <laughs> got a ton of photos here, and only three, maybe four, have cats in them. It's a shame, I tell you, a shame. Your name is El Gato Magnifico. For God's sakes, act like it. But if you still wish to purchase this, please do so. You can message him at El Gato Magnifico on Instagram. And uh, he does have an Etsy store. But again, I don't believe it's up there yet. I think that maybe you're just not looking hard enough. I'm sure there's more cats. Oh, you know, these photos are, there's, some, there's a lot of double exposure. So I could be missing some cats. And if I am, <laughs> please accept my humble apologies. But honestly, you need to do a whole zine of cats. What are you waiting for? Oh my gosh. Cat I know, he's done with, with like frogs, like friends. Yeah, you need cat friends. <laughs> make more friends with cats. Take more photos of cats. Make more zines with cats. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. That's about all the podcasts we got for you today. Almost, yes. Uh, we would like to remind you about the question coming up for next episode. If oh, you would yeah. leave a voice message there. What is that question again, Vanya? Is there a place that you've never visited that you would like to photograph? It's a good question. I can think of yeah, a few. Yeah, it is. Because so so this is an interesting one because I had never been to Kansas. I've seen your photos um, and I had an idea of what I was going to possibly photograph. Yes. But it's always different when you go. It is. It's never like what you picture in your mind. Yeah. So, yeah. Is there a place that you've never visited that you would like to photograph? Yes. Tell us those places. And maybe if you have a particular camera in mind, why not? Also... Uh, we've gotten a few messages about the Fuzzy Perito and Slow Meow zine idea that we had and we talked about a while ago. We're working out logistics here. Uh, it's been kind of a crazy, hectic time for us. There's a lot going on. But basically, if you want to be a part of it, send a few of your photos to us via email and our email will be, you know, you can find it. Yeah, you have time. We don't have a timeline yet. We've, we definitely have received some emails, but we are just kind of getting back into the swing of things. So once we compile things, we'll figure out a date that works for all of us and we'll give you more details. So that's all about the podcast we've got for you today. If you'd like to contact us, we are at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.com lens.podcast at gmail and we're at all through a lens on twitter vanya is surf martian and eric is conspiracy dot of dot cartographers both on instagram and speaking of instagram make sure you hashtag your stuff all through a lens podcast to be featured we also do a spotify playlist for each episode so check those out and see what we're listening to just search all through a lens you can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcast. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so much for listening. We missed you, we love you, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Vanya? Uh, yes? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. <laughs> Let's go! Can't do it now. <laughs> you, you bastard. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See what you did to I me. I did nothing. This is not me. <laughs>